When I was at school, one of my least favorite subjects was the subject of history. And I just never got that excited about learning all the names of the kings and queens down the centuries. And I never actually got even two in a row on the kings and queens of England. But uh, the various battles and 1066 and all those sorts of things. And the only real memory I have of history lessons was my dear teacher, Mr. Harvey, one of the finest and kindest people you could ever meet. He wasn't known for being a disciplinarian. And I have to confess, at the age of 13 and 14, we took advantage of this. And so during lessons, I did actually, I have to confess, join in eventually with my friends. I was quite good as a 13, 14-year-old, but my friends were having so much fun, I thought, I've just got to join in with this. Um, Basically, putting a hand up and asking Mr. Harvey a question. The nature of the question actually had nothing to do with history. The common, it was basically about sex education, and we were competing to see who was the most daring in the question that they might ask publicly in front of the class. So, of course, he was very embarrassed, and he would say, see me at the end, and I'll answer your question. And so at the end, there would regularly be three or four lads lined up against his huge front desk, and one after the other, they would ask these questions, and he would do his very best, with excruciating embarrassment, to answer the specific things that were being asked. And uh, that was really the highlight for me of history, my whole education there. At the time, we had the option of choosing our O-levels, our GCSE options. I gave up history immediately, and uh, I went on to other more exciting things. So I confess I know very little, really, about history. I'm basing this talk and next week's talk on ones which a friend of mine, Rich Nathan, has done some years ago as we focus on the lead-up to Easter, which is in two weeks' time. And Rich knows a lot about history. He's always read voraciously, and history, one of his major subjects at university, is a passion of his. And so these next comments are well-informed as we look at the meaning of history. And he says that one of the things he's observed is that historians and philosophers of history have had very different approaches to understanding the meaning of it. Some people write history as if it was just the story of accomplishments of various men and women through history. So we read about the accomplishments, for instance, of Julius Caesar, or Alexander the Great, or Horatio Nelson, and the kings and queens of England that I never got round to learning. And that's the approach that most people of my age and older, that I'd be about 40 and older, would have received, you didn't spot that, did you, at school, really the story of what great men and women did. And then there was apparently a reaction to that, and for many years there was a trend of moving off the focus of people's accomplishments, and history began to be the teaching of the impact of impersonal forces in our world. So we were taught about the impacts of plagues and natural disasters and class warfare between those who produced and those who owned capital. And then you have people like Professor Arnold Tony B, who taught that history is basically cyclical, an endless cycle of nations rising and falling and being replaced by another empire. So we see these great empires like ancient Greece and Rome, Spain for a time, the great British Empire, and now the United States, and so we go on. And nations rise and they tend to fall because they they forget the things that made them great in the first place become forgotten and they overextend themselves and then somebody else comes in the ascendancy. In the 19th century, 
there were optimists dominant in universities, and their view of history was basically the, store, the story of forward uh, progress of humanity. That as we learn more, we understand more, scientific discoveries give us more, we have more ability to communicate and everything else, that we, being inherently good, will advance. And they suggested that the 20th century might be a time of moving towards world peace. It's not just something that beauty contestants talk about. This is apparently what historians were hoping for, that we would actually, as a global village, get along better among ourselves as we advanced as humanity. That, of course, didn't happen. Uh, the 20th century was a very brutal century. We had World War I and II. We had the Holocaust and so on. And, and now people are far more pessimistic as they look at history and as they read it and look into the future. And it seems that most contemporary historians agree with the German philosopher Georg Hegel, who said this, the only thing that history teaches us is that history teaches us nothing. That was probably subliminally my own motto at the age of 14 as I was looking forward to getting out of those classes. But basically what he's saying is there is no real meaning to history, no rhyme or reason. We aren't actually going anywhere History is just a relatively random series of events without direction and without purpose. And then we come to the Bible, and the Bible has a very different view of history. The last book in the Bible, this, this Bible here, this book has 66 books in it. The last one is probably the hardest one to understand because it is an account by the Apostle John, John of a vision that he's experiencing. And as we read Revelation, if you ever do that, um, you need to understand it's not a linear story. It's John's attempt to capture the essence of the details of what he was seeing. Now, many of us dream, some of us more aware than others, uh, about recalling their dreams. Apparently, we all do it. We all dream, but some of us can recall more when we wake. But for those of us who can recall dreaming, it's likely that our dreams move from scene to scene, often with apparent no connection and the characters and the places that we experience may be wildly different from things that we experience in our day-to-day -day lives. Now imagine trying to write down what you've dreamt, your most vivid and extraordinary dream, in a way which captures as much of the essence of that dream in as much detail as you possibly can. And what you write may bear some resemblance to the book of Revelation. The Apostle John was actually awake when he experienced this. It was on a Sunday, we're told, near the end of the first century. And John was awake, but he tells us he was in the Spirit. That means he was worshipping the Lord, he was deeply in his presence, and he experienced this vision with elaborate imagery, fast-moving scenes, inspired by God. And the bulk of the vision, the revelation, is drawing back the curtain on history, revealing. It's revelation because it is revealing what is going on behind world history. So we're just going to dip in there for a moment at the beginning of chapter 5 as John, in his vision, is, finds himself in the presence of God in the throne room of heaven and he describes some of the things that he's seeing here. We're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, then, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? 
but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. The scroll here is a picture of basically containing the unfolding of world history, and it's sealed to human investigation. We won't get any real insight about what is going on in our world, why things are the way they are, from our politicians, from our journalists. We're not going to discover the ultimate meaning of history from philosophers or from sociologists. And John tells us there's only one person, actually, who can open up this scroll of history and uh, explain the world to us. And it continues there in verse 5. Then, one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center before the throne. John's talking here about Jesus Christ. He calls him the lion of the tribe of Judah, the conquering Messiah who comes from the Jewish tribe of Judah, traces his lineage back to the great King David. But a lion who has triumphed by becoming a sacrificial lamb, a lamb looking as though it had been slain. The people of Israel right through their history would have known about sacrifice and a lamb actually being killed and used as a burnt offering. And so looking like that, he triumphed by being a sacrificial lamb. He died for the sins of the world. He was executed on a wooden cross, just as we've celebrated just now with the Lord's Supper. History cannot be understood unless you look at it through the lens of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross, the event which we'll be remembering especially in just under two weeks' time at Good Friday. Only Jesus can open up the meaning of life because he has triumphed at the cross. It says there, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. So if you want a title for today's talk, it is this, the triumph of the cross. One of the things we discover when Jesus opens up the scroll of history to us and reveals to us the meaning of life is how superficial our approaches to the challenges of life facing us and facing the world really are. Every so often we read about another study that's been commissioned to investigate the causes of violent crime or juvenile delinquency, another panel that's been appointed to investigate the breakdown of the fabric of society. And no doubt these are excellent documents. They bring the brightest and best minds to bear on an issue and they suggest the causes and possible solutions to very vital issues, but with no real clue as to what really lies behind the root of the problems in the breakdown of society or of evil behavior. Jesus talked about his coming to set people free, to set them free from being held captive, and he says, by the strong man. He uses this word picture to describe somebody who holds people captive, and he says, I'm stronger. I've come to break the power of that hold and to release those who are uh, bound up. The apostle uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 2.1, Jesus referred to him as the enemy, referred to him as Satan, the devil. Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, 
the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You used to follow the ways of this world and this person, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That is Satan. That is the enemy. That is the devil. In other words, if you're to understand the world's problems, we need to see that human beings, all of us, are predisposed to following a path which is carved out for us by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that is the devil, the ruler of the kingdom of this world. And he says something similar a few chapters further on in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul's saying, you know, these shallow explanations of what is going on in the world, the problems of the world, actually are very superficial. He's saying the problems you face in life are not fundamentally just those you, as you, you know, the problem with your colleague or with your parent or your boss or the global economy. The great enemy was not communism in the 1950s. It's not radical Islam in the uh, 21st century. He's telling us what Jesus told us as he opened up the scroll of history. The root of our problems is the enemy, is the devil, and his dark forces of evil. Now, some of you here maybe don't yet even believe in God, and you maybe really don't believe in the devil, uh, but those of us who believe the Bible do. There is evidence, for instance, the titles of Satan and the devil, between them are used 80 times in the Bible. And there are many other references also to things like the enemy and descriptions, other ways of describing who he is and these dark forces of demonic power. And so it's very apparent, if you believe the Bible and in Jesus, believe what Jesus talked about, very apparent that Satan is very real and he is effectively the, the, uh, the ruler of this, the kingdoms of this world under God's overall rulership. And Paul says the muddle we're in is not merely human. There's something bigger, something more powerful than us, what Paul calls the spiritual forces of evil, which ultimately we must deal with. There is an unseen spiritual world that is constantly influencing us and the world around us. Jesus reveals to us that history is not just an endless, meaningless sequence of events. It is not cyclical, as Tony B. said, just this rise of powers and the fall of another, fall of nations. History is linear. It is actually going somewhere. Where is the world heading? Are we heading towards nuclear holocaust? Are we heading towards a global warming catastrophe on planet Earth, whatever? We don't know some of those things, but here is where the whole of history is heading and we find it in Revelation chapter 11, where he says this in verse 15. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world, okay, which is essentially the ruler, the prince of the power of the air, is, is uh, ruling over and influencing. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of this world, dominated by the strong man, by the ruler of the kingdom of the air, which is messed up by the activity of the spiritual forces of darkness, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and Christ. That is where history is heading. Satan utterly defeated, the devil utterly broken in his power. 
And the Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ. To be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. To bring to unity all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. That is where we're heading. Everything will be fulfilled when Christ is over it all ruling. So the world is hopelessly fragmented. It's divided. We're at war with ourselves. We're at war with others. We're at war uh, with our environment. God is going to bring this entire world under the rulership of Jesus Christ. The triumph of God over Satan ultimately took place at the cross. But as Jesus opens the scroll of history, we see how God's triumph over his enemy is worked out in some distinct stages, and all of this was achieved through the cross. One of the most profound books I've ever read, I read it about 20 years ago, it was written by the late John Stott. It is called The Cross of Christ. I've looked at it a number of times since. And if you're a reader, John Stott, many of you would know, one of the greatest theological writers in the Western world in his generation. And uh, he wrote dozens of books. This one has been hailed as quite likely his greatest work. And uh, if you're a reader and interested in the cross of Christ, you could not do better than read this one. I want to take a small part of that as he lays, lays out for us the stages of the triumph of the cross. So first of all, we have triumph predicted. The first prediction of Jesus' triumph over Satan is given in the Garden of Eden as part of God's judgment uh, on the serpent who has deceived Eve. Genesis 3 verse 15. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now he's talking there about Eve's offspring ultimately would be the Messiah, Jesus, and he is going to crush Satan's rule of evil. But in this prediction, we of course also read that when Jesus crushes the head of the serpent, he will be wounded in the process. His heel will be struck. And so the moment at the fall of man, right after our very first parents' sin, God communicated hope to humanity, that history is not just going to be a series of meaningless events, life is not just an unbroken series of tragedies, we're not just going to have to muddle through in the dark and in the fog. Back in the Garden of Eden, God predicted triumph over the enemy. And then in the second stage, we have triumph begun in the life and the ministry of Jesus. As we read the Gospels in the New Testament, we see Satan and his forces progressively being pushed back. Jesus' presence basically advanced his kingdom against the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of darkness. Satan tried to get rid of Jesus right at the beginning. When he was a baby, he incited Herod to kill all the babies around and didn't manage to get Jesus. Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness to move away from his messianic calling. Satan spoke through Peter to try and persuade Jesus not to go to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross. But Jesus kept pushing back the powers of darkness. John's first letter in the New Testament, 1 John 3.8, he writes this, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In Acts chapter 10, it says this, that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went around doing good, and healing all who are under the power of the devil. Now, sickness is not God's doing. We do know that. It is an expression of the messed up world 
influenced by Satan. So when it says healing all who are under the power of the devil, it doesn't mean a direct correlation. The devil gave that person that specific illness. But within the rule of this broken world and these dark forces, sickness is an expression of the enemy's nature, not of God's. And whenever Jesus met someone afflicted or sick, he healed them. He cast evil spirits out of people. He taught and showed how we're supposed to live. And so the triumph was begun in the life and ministry of Jesus. And then most importantly, in this third and decisive stage, the triumph was achieved at the cross over Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. So we have triumph achieved. The cross, as we've said, is the fulfillment of this prediction that was made in Genesis 3, verse 15. And, uh, excuse me, the the misery and the bondage that the, the serpent brought about in Eden was triumphed over at the cross where the serpent struck Jesus and he crushed the serpent's head. And perhaps the most important New Testament text in explaining to us how this triumph was achieved is Colossians chapter 2, 13 to 15, which we're just going to briefly look at. Colossians is a letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the people in Colossae, the church there. And Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, it says this, beginning at the second half of verse 13. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God, he says, God forgave us all our sins. How did he do that? Well, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. More literally, he blotted out the charge of our legal indebtedness. And uh, to really understand what Jesus accomplished for us, we need to realize that he has blotted out our debt and he's blotted out the record of it. We human beings are under an obligation to obey God. He created the universe, he created us. He said, this is how I want you to live and we've not lived that way. We've incurred a debt a legal indebtedness, if you like. God is the supreme ruler of the universe, and he revealed his will to us back in the Old Testament in what many of you would have heard of, the Ten Commandments. And he says, basically, this is what it means to obey me. Live like this, and you'll live well with me, and you'll live well with each other. This, a society that would do these ten things would thrive. Okay, he says, basically, you should have no other gods before me, Don't make any idols. Don't be worshipping anything other than me. Don't misuse my name. Keep the Sabbath. Take a day of rest and focus on me. Honor your parents. Don't murder people. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal stuff. Do not lie. And don't covet what isn't yours. And if you'll do that, it's going to work well. Jesus then, in Matthew 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, takes basically the teaching of the Old Testament, and he enhances it in the greatest sermon ever preached. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And he gets to the heart of some of these commandments by telling us that it's not enough not to simply, you know, like physically commit murder or physically commit adultery. He warns against, you know, being angry and hateful thoughts and guarding against lustful thoughts. And we can go through the list of the Ten Commandments and see that all of us without exception, have rung up this tremendous debt of broken obligations to God. 
We owe God, our maker and our ruler, total obedience, and yet a million times over, every one of us has failed to pay God the obedience that we owe. And no matter how hard we try, you and I will never be able to pay off the debt that we owe to God, our legal indebtedness. We haven't a hope. The great trap of religion is around the world. People are trying through various religious rituals and things like that to try and make it right, to try and pay that debt, to try not to be legally in debt to God. And maybe if I go to church more, or if I go to mosque or synagogue or temple regularly, or if I go on a pilgrimage, or if I pray five times a day, or if I reform my ways, then maybe I could do some way towards paying off that debt that I owe to God. But here's the reality. We are utterly helpless in our attempts. We on our own will never be able to pay our debt to God. You on your own, the Bible says, are bankrupt. I am bankrupt. I cannot pay my debt. It is simply too great. And that is why the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is such good news. God in his grace acted through Jesus Christ, his son, who is also God, to take care of our debt. He forgave us all our sins, it says here, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away. God not only cancels out the debt of our disobedience, God destroys the document upon which the record of our disobedience was written. There is no record of your failure or mine before God's court anymore. If you have committed your life to Jesus and receive what he has done for you. When you stand before God in judgment on that great and terrible day, God says, figuratively speaking to his clerk, read me John's sins. You can put your own name into that sentence if you're a follower of Jesus. Read me Mary's sins, Susie's sins. And the clerk's gonna go, I'm sorry, I've got the name, but I have no record at all here. Not only there are no sins, there's no record of them, the file's not only been deleted, the backup copy has been destroyed. Psalm 103 verse 12 tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. They are utterly gone, dealt with. That is good news. Paul goes on in explaining how the triumph over Satan was achieved. He says, not only were your sins blotted out, but they were nailed to the cross. Verse 14 here Having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean to have your sins and your indebtedness nailed to the cross? Well, when in the ancient world a prisoner was crucified by the Roman government, the charge that stood against them was nailed above them, basically hung over them so that onlookers could see why they were crucified. If someone was a a murderer, it would say murderer. You look at that person, okay, that's why they're being crucified because they've led a rebellion or something like that. It would be nailed above them. And you'll recall that when Jesus was crucified over the cross in three different languages, the charge leveled against him, at least by Pontius Pilate, was read, read this way, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that while that was the literal sign, it wasn't the only sign hanging over Jesus on that cross. There was another sign there nailed to it, a sign containing all the charges which could be brought against you and me, and indeed against everybody who has ever lived and yet is still to live, listing every one of your sins, every one of my sins. 
So on the cross, the sign didn't just say, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's nailed to the cross. It said things like liar, thief, gossip, pornography user, cheat, unforgiving one, arrogant, ungrateful, proud, angry, greedy, abusive, self-centered, disobeyer of God. And if you stop to think of any of the sins that trouble you in your life, name them there as well. When you look at the cross, do you understand that nailed to it is the list of all your sins? Everything that could ever, you could ever be ashamed of is nailed, was nailed on that occasion to that cross. Jesus paid the price for all the charges that were leveled against you and against me. Your indebtedness to God was nailed there. And that's where my sins belong, permanently nailed there. So why was their victory achieved at the cross? Well, because he blotted out our debt. He nailed it to the cross. And it says here, verse 15, he disarmed the powers. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So how is Satan disarmed, having disarmed the powers and authorities? How is he disarmed? What, what power was taken from Satan and from his, you know, his hordes and his demons and so on at that point? Well, primarily the power to accuse us, the power to bring condemnation, the weapon of accusation. The name Satan essentially means adversary. In a courtroom, uh, we have an adversary who brings the accusation, is the accuser, and that is essentially a way of translating the name Satan. It means the accuser. And one of the major ways in which Satan has power over us is by reminding us of our sins, including those that we've already confessed. He accuses us. He rakes them up. And I see this sometimes in interactions with people as I'm listening to them or praying for them. And uh, counselors face this very often with their clients. A person, uh, a Christian, a follower of Jesus may be thoroughly discouraged because of their past. Some sin in their past, a particular form their sin took, and they're held back and they find themselves in a place where they just can't move on and they can't thrive and flourish in life because this, this crushes them. The weight of that sin, they cannot let it go. And you talk with them about what Jesus achieved on the cross and say, you're forgiven. They say, yes, I understand, but you don't understand. I can't let myself off the hook. I cannot forgive myself, and I can't really receive the fact that God has forgiven me either. They failed in whatever way. And there's often at the root of discouragement and depression this one big thing, this one big particular failure, and the enemy uses that to condemn them and to accuse them again and again and again. I don't know whether you've ever experienced this form of spiritual warfare in your own life where there is a flood of accusations coming to you in the middle of the night as you lay awake. You know you're a sinner. You know you've sinned. We all have. But you suddenly find yourself so troubled and accused and, and wretched because of it. How do we respond when such accusations are brought against us? There was a woman that Debbie and I prayed for. This was in another country some years ago. And she was in her late 50s, but she had never told anyone about something that had happened when she was in her late teens and early 20s. I don't think she'd even told her parents, but she had had three abortions in quick succession as a young woman. And she had been utterly tormented for most of her life, 
crushed by the weight of this, the secret, first of all, but also I cannot forgive myself, and she couldn't believe that God could either. I'll talk more about her in a moment. So what are we to do with these accusations? When, when Satan says, you've blown it, you've done wrong, uh, what do we do? Well, we can try arguing with his accusation, defending ourselves and denying it. No, I'm not that bad. You know, I was young. I did some stupid things, and I'm actually a good person, and that's not, it wasn't so bad what I did. The devil doesn't mind us arguing with him because it, it gets us nowhere. It's totally missing the point. We simply cannot convince ourselves, no matter how much we argue and try to, that we are totally good. We simply can't do it because we're not. There's going to be an element of truth in almost every accusation that the enemy brings against us that we, of course, have made mistakes. We have failed. We have sinned. And so arguing is not going to work. The second inadequate response is to try and escape and just say, well, I'm not going to address it. I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to keep my mind so busy I won't ever have to deal with these accusing thoughts. I wonder how many people are trying to escape from the guilt of past failures by escaping through their drug of choice, some chemical dependency. I spoke to someone following the talk this morning who said that's exactly what I have done in becoming a drug addict. He's now been clean for some time, but saying, yes, escaping from these tormenting feelings of guilt. It could even be like something like workaholism or the constant need to have noise in the background. Certainly this generation, more than perhaps any other, has uh, tapped into this to have either the radio playing or the television is immediately switched on when they walk into a room or their iPod or their phone has everything from a podcast to iTunes music constantly. Some people live with a constant noise. And then they even play that noise as they go to sleep. They're watching a movie, listening to music, listening to some podcast or whatever. They fall asleep to noise. And then as they wake up with the alarm, the alarm radio comes on and it's noise again. Never having any real silence in their life. Often the backdrop to addictive behavior is the need to fill our souls with noise so we don't have time or space to deal with the otherwise prevalent accusation that could come because of our failures and our sins. Might it be that some of you here tonight are escaping into some form of addiction to try and silence the voice that inside you tells you you've blown it. There's no hope for you. You are a failure. You are unloved. God couldn't love someone like you. The problem is that our addictions only add fuel to our feelings of guilt. And the devil traps addicts in this downward spiral of guilt, leading to the need to escape through further addictive behavior, leading to a greater level of guilt and accusation, leading to the need for even more escape. So that's not going to work, escaping. If we can't defend ourselves, we can't escape. What about avoiding Satan's accusations by blaming others? Bounce it off, project it onto somebody else. Well, this isn't going to work either. To say, you know, I haven't done anything wrong, it's your fault, you know, this marriage is breaking up, but it's your fault, it's all your fault, I have no responsibility. It's not going to work because it's not always someone else's fault. We have, when we know it, in the quiet moments when you're by yourself, you will not be able to escape the accuser who lets you know that you are actually responsible for many of the things you're trying to deny and, and blame shift. So if denial, escape, and blaming others doesn't work, what does work? in dealing with Satan's accusations. What works is believing God's word and employing it to meet those accusations. The woman that Deb and I were ministering to, she confessed this 
extremely shameful secret which had tormented her for decades, and we pronounce forgiveness, God's forgiveness over her. In John's first letter in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 1.8, it says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. There's nothing to be gained by denying our sin or escaping it or, or blaming others for it. Basically, if we say we haven't sinned, we're just dumb. We're fooling ourselves. It goes on, though. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And we spoke that over her. We told her, this is what the Bible says because of what Christ has done on the cross. He has nailed your sins to the cross. And he says, if you confess, he is faithful and just. He will forgive you. He will cleanse you, purify you from all of it. And she received that forgiveness in a profound way. And it was a lovely occasion. She experienced freedom from condemnation in an, an amazing joy that came upon her. She was like five foot two and she suddenly became five foot eight. And just in this weight that had lifted off her, that the weight of her sin had crushed her for all these years. And she was suddenly realizing she was free. Your greatest sin and my greatest sin is not necessarily that horrible thing we did or said, which we can't take back. It's not that thing which you're so ashamed of, whatever is hounding you. That's not your greatest failure. Your greatest failure, your greatest sin, and my greatest sin might just be the failure to believe the Word of God. God has declared in this passage here, Colossians 2, that He has blotted out all our debts, blotted out the record of our indebtedness. He has nailed our sins to the cross of Christ, where it has been fully, it's been fully paid for. And the great sin that many people regularly commit against God is to say, I don't believe you. I believe you keep a record somewhere. I can't let go of it. I cannot forgive myself, and I refuse to believe that you have forgiven me. I don't believe I can be let off the hook, and so I'm going to keep myself there. That's just simply unbelief. And if you want to repent of something before God, a good idea would be to stop repenting over and over and over again for the same thing that Satan keeps throwing in your face. Instead, repent of your unbelief. The cross has taken away for all time and totally the power of accusation from Satan, his main weapon to discourage because the cross has absolutely disarmed him. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What happened at the cross was that Jesus turned the tables on Satan. Satan thought that his plan, obviously all the way through, was to get Jesus killed and to hold the Son of God up to public disgrace. And as the Son of God, Jesus hung there, naked probably, mocked on that cross with the taunts of the passers-by, the mocking of the crowd. Satan must have thought, got him. You know, I'm making a public spectacle of Jesus. He didn't understand the profound nature of the cross, the pivotal point in history that was a means of disgracing him, triumphing and making a spectacle of the powers and authorities. There is in this text this picture, which would have been a common sight back in the ancient world there, of a Roman general having been off to battle, would, would, having won that battle, would come back with his prisoners in chains. And they would be paraded through the street, and everyone would chuck apples at them and spit at them and shout at them. And then the army that had fought the battle with him, the soldiers, and people would throw flowers at them and cheer them and so on. And then at the back of it would be the Roman general himself in his chariot, 
receiving all the adulation, wearing a wreath, wearing a victory sash, and so on. And that is what happened at the cross, making a public spectacle of the enemy. The the cross was Jesus' victory chariot. I got this quote this afternoon from John Calvin. In his commentary on this passage in Colossians, he says this, and forgive him speaking old-fashioned English, he was around in the 16th century. And when he refers to gibbet, he means the cross. It's just a way of describing it then. For there is no tribunal so magnificent, no throne so stately, no show of triumph so distinguished, no chariot so elevated as the gibbet, the cross, on which Christ has subdued death and the devil, nay more, has utterly trodden them under his feet. And so this public spectacle was not that visible on that day to the onlookers, but in the heavenly realms, Satan was being made a public spectacle of. He is paraded in chains. He is a defeated foe. His power to accuse is absolutely shattered. Satan's head was crushed, as was predicted in Genesis chapter 3. Never allow Satan to deceive you that he still has the weapon of accusation in his hand, which the cross of Christ has taken away. Then we have the fourth stage, triumph announced and extended. Have you ever wondered why Satan wasn't just destroyed that day? Maybe it's because Satan now has to watch through all of history, the kingdom of God being extended and his house being plundered. He's disarmed with the power of accusation taken away. He is forced to stand and watch as weak, insignificant, unimportant people extend the victory of the cross throughout the world. People that he has held captive being set free. He has to watch every day many thousands of people move from his deception and come under the freedom of Jesus Christ our Lord. As the scroll is unfolded by the lion of Judah, who is the sacrificial lamb, namely Jesus, there is entrusted to us in the church the great message of salvation, where we get to invite people to come to the cross to receive forgiveness. We invite people to come to Jesus and find hope and fulfillment. We invite people to come to Christ to discover how much God loves them. History, as it has been taught, suggests it's all about great people kings and queens and presidents and generals. History as Jesus unfolds, it says that these great people really are peripheral to the real story. The real story is taking place in staff rooms and offices and university halls and factories and at school gates among ordinary people as one Christian explains the meaning of the cross to someone who doesn't yet know its incredible message. The real story His story that makes up history is the story of followers of Jesus going out and sharing the meaning of the cross all over the world. The victory is announced and extended, not just with our words, but with the things that we do in representing God as we extend his kingdom, as we feed the hungry, as we pray for the sick and embrace the lonely and fight for justice and so on. If you're part of the Christian church, you are at the center. You are a main actor in God's story. I don't know whether you've ever seen the word history as two words, his story. And amazingly, we get to play a part in it. There's the triumph announced and extended, and finally, the triumph will one day be consummated. The world is going somewhere. 
history is leading to its consummation. We're looking forward to the second coming of Christ. Jesus was crucified as we celebrate on Good Friday. He was raised again to life. We celebrate a couple of days later, Easter Day. He then, having been raised, spent a few weeks with his followers, up to 500 at a time. Many people saw him as he taught them about the kingdom. And then he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. There's a day coming, the second coming of Christ, uh, where he will judge and he will reign forever. John Stott, let me finish with, he's quoting or referring to Revelation chapter 20 here. John Stott wrote this, the Lord's anointed is already reigning, but he's also waiting until his enemies become a footstool for his feet. On that day, Every knee will bow to him, and every tongue confess him Lord. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire where death and Hades will join him, for the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Then when all evil, dominion, authority, and power have been destroyed, the Son will hand over the kingdom to the Father, and he will be all in all. History is going somewhere. It is heading towards the full expression of the triumph of the cross.